I need to know everything Who in the what and the where I need everything Trust me, I hear what you're saying But act like it's new what you're telling me I'm curious, George I hop in the Porsche with five and a horse I'm ready for war I'm coming for throws To turn to a ghost I need to know everything Now you be surprised at the info you get Is by letting them talk So I'm letting them talk Gotta keep quiet, maneuver in science to let him and talk up their body get another one. I am not your host, He's in Scotland. How many scotches do we think Pete has had in Scottishland, Scotland? I mean, if they had fixed odds wagering, I would say it's closer to a hundred than it is to one. Um so I would definitely take the uh the the proposition yes, closer to a hundred. I am your host, Jonathan Kinchin, and uh, I have a fun guest today to, to, to teach us all, all of us, a little bit more about this game we love from a wagering, wagering standpoint, from behind the scenes, uh, some of the biggest issues we have in this game, and, and one of the, you know, basically the 800-pound gorilla. Is it gorilla or elephant? Or is it, well, I don't know. There's a creature in the corner that's a large creature in the corner that we all talk about often, and uh, Pat is here, Pat Cummings is here uh, to, to talk a little bit more about that before we get to, to Pat. I, I do want to say looking forward to this summer. It's going to be a ton of fun. I don't know if you had a chance to check out the Saratoga lifestyle podcast that I recorded yesterday with my uh, wonderful wife. I almost called her my fiance, my wonderful wife, Jovenina Salivo Kinchin. And we, we went over uh, the menu at Salivo. We went over all of our places. We like to go for breakfast, lunch, dinner uh, for the, for the ladies, hair, nails, spas, uh, health and wellness, coffee shops, um, drinks, travel. We, we did it all. Lakes, not lakes, caviar, not caviar, all the things. French fries with your breakfast, uh, hot dogs from the Racino. We went over it all. But I, I, I point that out for another reason is I think I've got my video set up for uh, two people JK plus one with videos this summer at Saratoga. So still perfecting that with the studio, but I, I think we're going to be able to have some pretty cool things for you throughout the summer. I want to thank our friends at Qatar racing. Um, looking forward to hopefully fingers crossed. We'll get to see uh, the mighty Caravelle. One of my other favorite horses they have in trading is this uh, ever so uh, mischievous. Uh, looking forward to seeing that one. I think last time they ran was at Ellis. I've been chasing that horse around for a while. So hopefully maybe uh, an appearance and, and an allowance or a stake of some sort at Saratoga. Uh, also at the sale, really looking forward to, to, to seeing some slips signed by our friends at Qatar Racing. Know they want to be involved in American racing at a high level, uh, creating stallions like they do uh, overseas. So if you if you see um, if you see Qatar Racing at the Saratoga sale, uh, Fazek Tipton signing uh, signing. Um, for horses, we we want uh, we want to definitely root them on. Thank you for your support. Uh, like I mentioned at the top, our guest today, Pat Cummings, a good friend of mine and a uh, a voice for the horse player for racing, um, has really done some amazing things since joining, and and basically not since joining, since helping create with uh, Craig Burnick, a, a previous podcast guest, the Thoroughbred Idea Foundation, and spearheading a lot of their. Um, white papers and the uh, some of their successes are already becoming apparent we've seen a lot of racetracks listen to the the talk about computer uh, 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 computer automated wagering which we talk about a lot today you also have seen their success in penny breakage those funny prices at ellis and at churchill um you know pat cummings was instrumental 
and getting those pennies back into the pockets of horse players, um, allowing us to put them back into circulation. Uh, this idea that we're taking those pennies and, and, and going to buy groceries with them is silly. We're, we're, we're playing, we're coming back and, and we're here. And, uh, the state of Kentucky listened and, and hopefully some others will follow, but we talk a lot today specifically about Pat's recent paper and, and the Thoroughbred Idea Foundation's recent paper, Sharks and Minnows. And it talks a lot about um, the CAWs and those are the 800 pound, I can't remember if it's gorilla or elephant, but what, what whatever creature is sitting in the corner, uh, it's, it's them. And we talk about, they don't need to go away. We just need to, to understand how they're impacting the economics of our game, the future of our game. And, and Pat, um, one of the smartest guys I know, has, has really been behind trying to get um, a lot of these things uh, going in the right direction. And, 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 and in fairness, this is just me talking. I, I didn't really talk to Pat about this, but you know, because Pat is calling out issues um i i wanted people to hear his voice not that you haven't hear, heard him on steve vick before but hear his voice and understand that he is a passionate uh supporter of this game that is 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 just trying to point out the things that we have to to address and i think that listening to this hour and 45 minutes that we have for you. You'll, you'll understand a little bit more about our game, the game that you love, the game that we love, but you'll also understand a little bit more of, of, of Pat's uh, perspective and, and what it is that him and the Thoroughbred Idea Foundation and the rest of the horse players that, uh, that are paying attention want to get accomplished. Okay, long enough intro, especially for a long podcast. I try to be quick. I'm just excited. Saratoga's around the corner. Austin's outside on a slip and slide. Uh, summer is upon us. My friend, Pat Cummings. PAT, what's going on? How you doing, JK? I'm good, man. I'm good. Uh, I, I mean, I think I'm doing better than you. Uh, in our conversations off air, you said something about traveling from some foreign country and then your air conditioners broke. Those both sound like a combination of two things that I could think of in a nightmare. It was a long trip back from South Africa. Um, got back. I, I honestly lost track of how many hours, but it was it was a long travel back. I barely made the longest of the flights, uh, thanks to a lovely delay. And then we get home and find some water on the floor in the basement, and one of the air cons is down. And you know, summer summer doings it, it happens, but uh, you know, keep on keeping on, man. Are you are you going to get up to Saratoga uh, at all this this summer? Yes, twice non consecutive weeks um, on a panel at the roundtable. Uh, which would be great on computer-assisted wagering, which I'm sure we'll talk more about. And then the same topic, that's Whitney Week. And then two weeks later, back for the Racing and Gaming Conference with a little bit of racing in between, a little Philly. Um, yeah, I, I've I've pretty much made it to Saratoga every summer since 01, um, with maybe like one or two exceptions. So it's it's pretty much a must-do in my life now. When you when you mention a little bit of Philly, are you referring to the state or the person, Joe? <laughs> no, not the state, assuredly. Um, oh, the, the, def- the city. I mean, the city, the city, the city, the city. <laughs> I'm definitely almost. Yeah, I will definitely see our mutual friend Philly Joe Metka, um, who is uh, a practically a lifelong friend. I mean, we've been friends since high school. Um, 
and those on the contest circuits know Philly, uh, Philly Joe, and uh, my my parents and some Phillies baseball, and just you know get that get love love getting up there. Um, it's home, you know. It's 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 where it all started for me. Well, Pat, I want to I want to do a couple of things uh, on this episode. I want to obviously do your you know your kind of your origin, your your Logan to Wolverine story, your origin story of of how you became a fan of the game, uh, a participator in message boards into uh, some of the positions you've had in racing. And, and then, and then I want to kind of dive in to in a conversational way to some of the great work that, that you have spearheaded with along with Craig Burnick and, and the team at, at the thoroughbred idea foundation on some of these papers that you've put together. More importantly, I think that the kind of the hot topic now is the computer assisted wagering, the CAWs and, and, and talking a little bit, um, like I said, conversationally about some of the black and white uh, hard work you guys have done that you've put on paper on some of these white papers. Um, before we get to the origin story, I just want to kind of talk a little bit about the, the kind of the tone of this, because, you know, I, I think you, you named that paper so well um, the sh- sharks and minnows, right? Cause it's, there is this perception of the big, bad CAWs. And although I do agree that that, that you know, that moniker kind of works, the big, bad CAWs, I, I think that you and I are in agreement that it's not so much that they have to go away. It's that the industry has to have the foresight to see that if not regulated in a, in a way that makes it more fair for everyone else, although they have all the right to do everything that they're doing, it's not what's best for the longevity of it. So, and, I, and I, if you agree with that, I, I just wanted to kind of get that out. Like that's going to be kind of the approach of, of this conversation. Yeah. I, I'm, I, I don't know if I agree with all of it, but, but definitely most of that JK. Um, I, you, when you put things on paper or on screen and you try and make it, you know, as tight as you can and as cogent as you can, it doesn't, you know, People in, interpret things differently and people, um, you know, they, they read the same thing and come away with totally different impressions. I, I am, I, and our consultants, Craig, um, we're not against CAW betting at all. Uh, I think that needs to be very clear. We don't want to see it go away. We don't want to see it banned. Um, and I think, you know, from a greater horse racing, kind of the, 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 the 30,000 foot view. Uh, it's just a matter of how do we manage it? How has it evolved? How do we ensure that it is, it does not have a deleterious effect on ordinary horse players? How do we make sure that uh, access to our wagering pools is equal or fairer, more equitable Um, and how do we, I think as a greater industry focus on building the wagering business and building the fan base, uh, back, because I think we can all agree that it just isn't what it once was. And some of that is natural evolution, but some of it requires work and attention, uh, from a lot of people across the sport. Um, and, and, you know, it's clearly evolved, uh, to where it is now and, it does have some detrimental effects. So it's something that we really started diving into four years ago. 
uh, back in 2020 during the pandemic when we started to see all this money come in from the ADWs, right? People couldn't bet on track, right? They couldn't bet at OTBs for the most part. And we saw this, a lot of money obviously had shifted to the ADWs, but then you're like, well, where's the rest of it? And trying to, to dive into that rabbit hole that turned into a, a you know, a deep cavern of uh, research to, to, to kind of understand a little bit more and how that industry uh, and how those betters have grown. But, you know, being against CAW betting is essentially, you know, you're against modernization, you're against technology, you're against doing things quicker, faster, smarter, more efficient. Um, it's just antithetical to be against it. Um, but you can't be, it, it is very easy to be against the negative effects thereof. It's how do we mitigate that? I think uh, that this is really, that, that, that's all it's about. You know, I, I'm, I'm too excited. We're going to, we're going to, we're diving in. We're going to, we're going to origin story towards the end. You know what I mean? Whatever. Let's just, let's, so, I mean, most of the people that are listening to this, I think are a hundred percent aware of what it look, what the mechanics are, what it looks like, but let's just take a chance, a, a second here. If we have someone who is, a little bit newer. Um, we do have a lot of industry folks that, and I think this is, I think this is the biggest problem. We'll talk about it is un, don't really understand the, the wagering portion of our game. Um, they understand how to rub a horse's legs. They understand how to put on great events, but they don't always fully grasp uh, the wagering and they surely don't grasp, grasp the, the, the personality of a better and what makes us tick and what makes us, uh, move, but let's just talk a little bit from a base level. What is, what is a CAW and, and, and what does it look like and how does, how does it operate, you know, in a, in a way to kind of get people set up for this conversation? Well, I'll start by saying that whatever I offer to you today in our recording is uh, based on my current knowledge as of this time and my opinions and uh, you know, my knowledge base may change in the future. Uh, based on additional information that that, that becomes a, you know clear to me at some point, um, there is not a lot of public information about this topic. Uh, many of the computer assisted wagering teams, computer assisted wagering overall, is is essentially anybody who's using some sort of program. I mean, to be fair, like a file upload um, to automatically place bets. Um, this is typically happening either directly through an ADW or through a separate relationship that has been established um, essentially within the rules uh, of most uh, jurisdictions of racing um, that uh, allows direct access by an individual to place their bets directly into the paramutual pool. So essentially skirting an ADW and they're not going to the racetrack directly. They are, they are acting essentially as their own racetrack, uh, their own off-track betting site, and, and depositing their bets direct to the, to the pools. Um, this has been around for the history, essentially, of the internet. Um, it started out very small. And we have um, essentially proof from an industry-funded study back in 2003 that at that time, total CAW betting on U.S. racing was about 8% of total handle. Uh, that number at that time, if you make all the necessary adjustments, um, was maybe about 
you know, uh, 1.8 million out of, or excuse me, 1.8 billion dollars, I think it was, out of close to um, 15 billion at the time. Um, make the adjustments for inflation on those numbers today, and right, you know, where we were 20, 25 years ago is a heck of a lot better than where we are today. Uh, adjusted for inflation, total wagering on racing now is down about 50%. But that doesn't tell us the full story because the CAW betting, this algorithmic-driven, high-frequency betting, customers who are essentially the last one in into the market, uh, placing almost all their bets at the in the very last flash, um, they are you know between a third. And in some cases, higher than 40% of the total of some pools, not total betting. Uh, and there is a natural uh, ceiling on this, right? So you can't just uh, assume that all betting is going to become essentially high frequency betting. It's, it's not. You know, there, there is a limit to, to this. And those customers, because of how much they're wagering, somewhat rightly, uh, receive rebates. They receive discounts because of their essentially wholesale participation in, in racing. So, um, you know, my understanding, my research, some of which is based on some public information, but plenty based on private conversations, people who've come to us that have information and that want to share it, uh, some of which can be confirmed, some of which can't, you know, it's, it's tough. There's, there's, there's a lot of kind of dark holes in this, um, in the space. Not a lot of public information, so, so you really have to, to to research and try to verify as best you can. But yeah, I, I think that the biggest customers are essentially getting rebates uh, well into the double digits, uh, over 10%. Um, some probably getting up to close to 20% on certain bet types. You know, I'm thinking parks, trifectas, and supers that are you know, well uh, upper 20s, near 30%, th- those sort of things. They're the highest frequency betters are probably getting over 20% rebates on those sorts of bets. So, so let's talk, let's talk a little bit more about the mind of these folks. Cause I, I think some people, when I've had conversations, they get confused about, about, you know, a, a lot of kind of novice players are like, I don't care. I mean, I can beat a computer or, or, or people don't really understand that they're kind of playing a different game than we are. When, when you and I sit down to look at a pick five opening day at Saratoga, we're trying to kind of find a way to leverage a couple of opinions, run some things together and, and, and try to turn a hundred dollars into 500, $5,000, $2,000. That's, that's the goal of the typical better who goes to the racetrack. I understand that yours and mine might be different and we, we approach it differently, but in general, our, our approach is to, to bet a certain amount of money, and to and to there's this expected return for being right about that race, the outcome of that race, why handicapping has been such a popular thing in this game. But I think that the difference, what I always try to explain to people is that computers don't necessarily care if they win or lose in the long term. They just want to get as close to even as possible so that they can just get their rebate and that's how they make their money. Sure. So so when, when you know this idea that you can beat the computers, the computers don't care if you beat them because they just care that they can take enough of the inefficiencies that are in the market off the table to keep them as close to breaking even as possible so that they can just collect 
their rebate. I think your your term care is is the right one to put at the center of the conversation. Care suggests emotion. And and the high frequency betters, the CAWs, are emotionless when it comes to betting, which in many ways I think is the opposite of you, me, the vast majority of what we'll call mainstream horse players who go to the track and they hang on the race, right? They feel their, their heart pounds a little bit more. There's that excitement and, you know, use Saratoga as that example. When, when you walk into Saratoga for the first time this summer, there is that smell in the air that is familiar. The, the way that the breeze blows or that the, the, the humidity hangs, um, or uh, the sound of, of the grandstand, uh, you know, wood tiles underneath your feet. There's just, there's this excitement, right? It's a, it's a fully emotional experience. And then you play that first pick five, or you make that first win bet, and your heart jumps a little bit when they break from the gate, and they're off at Saratoga, right? And all of the, the CAWs don't care about that. Now, some of them uh, may love horse racing and may have loved the game in that way at that point, but many of them have boiled it down to a mathematical uh, equation and investment strategy, right? That that's what this uh, that's what their approach to this has been, and uh, it becomes uh, numbers on a screen and making slight adjustments to their systems. They're constantly tweaking and adjusting and re-strategizing how they uh, are, are placing their bets. It is nothing quite to the same degree of how an ordinary horse player approaches a day of racing, whether it's in front of their computer, their phone, uh, an OTB, or at the track themselves. And some of these groups, I think, are you know, they're really quite substantial, right? We Our research indicates that there's maybe one or two that are betting roughly to over $1 billion a year each. And then there's probably a second tier of another five to eight that are betting, um, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars annually. Now, that doesn't mean they started with a billion or started with hundreds of millions, but they are churning. Right. And they are are just, as you said, very correctly. I think they're just trying to do as well as they can, as close to break even as they can. And if they can end up, you know, walking away with kind of a gross profit of 10 percent or so, and then they take their expenses off of that. Yeah. You know, they're making uh, five, six, seven percent a year and some are maybe making eight or nine and maybe the best are making 10 or 11 percent a year. Uh, and off of a billion dollars invested or $500 million handled, that's a really good year. Um, yeah. so, so someone, so, so let's, and we'll, we'll get to this, I think in, in more detail, but let's, let's at least open up the can. I think some people would, would say to you, well, 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 Pat, why is that a problem? If there's these groups that are spending you know, you just mentioned three hundred, you know, three billion dollars that they're wagering. Um, aren't they fueling our game? I'm not asking that question honestly, but there is people that are asking, aren't they fueling our game? Yeah, I, for sure. I mean, all all handles important, 
right? Um, all, all participation is meaningful in some regard. Uh, horsemen are getting a cut of every dollar that is wagered on the sport through the paramutual system in North America, uh, particularly in the U.S. Uh, Canada's maybe a slightly different story there. Um, but, uh, you know, we should be caring about all of our customers, right, uh, in, in every way. Just like, you know, you, um, there, are, there are different customer experiences for airlines or um, for, uh, you know, investment uh, portfolios, right? If, you, if you've got over a million dollars, you have a certain level of service. And if you, if you have over $250,000, you know, a certain level of service here. And if you flew this many flights in a year, you get a, a preferred level of service. But at the end of the day, you need to get all your customers to the destination, right? Um, I think that the same thing kind of exists here in that um, you know, we, we, we need all of racing's customers and we need to grow those customers. We're not like we, we, we can quantify that. We, we have seen a degradation of racing's kind of mass market base. And that has happened slowly over time. Right. We estimate that in the last 20 years, total handle from what we'll call non-CAW betters is down about 66, 67 percent, two thirds roughly in 20 years. That's adjusted for inflation. Um, and think of all the evolution that's happened in that in other spaces, right? Sports betting, the Internet personal uh, entertainment options have, have grown substantially. There's a lot more that people can do now. This has a, a downstream effect across the entire sport um, in that there are fewer people engaging in horse racing. So the ones that you have, you need to support and try to grow. The ones you don't, you want to present a sport that they can participate in, invest in, a wager that is friendly, amenable, approachable, uh, not completely puzzled and with high expenses. And you also need to, to offer something that can be uh, engaged to by, by those who want, you know, an extra bit of technology, who, who want to, to put a system in place and, um, and, and, you know, essentially create algorithms, right? This is happening in so many other forms of betting. It's happening in daily fantasy sports. Um, we need to be there too. And we are with a very, very, very small number of individuals who are uh, in essentially enabled by the industry to have a, a certain degree of access and, and to almost always be the last customer in the pool. Um, that evolution, I don't think, has really worked out well. But we need all the customers. We need all the handle, and we need more of it. Uh, but the way the industry has evolved just is not, has, has not uh, I don't think, has done that well, J.K., no, and I, and I and look, I, I think you know you make some great points. I mean, part of the of the of the decline is because of so many other things that are available, and we're fully aware of that, right? I mean, it's it's uh, you know, fantasy football didn't exist back then, in in and uh, cell phones where you can, you know, play Candy Crush for three hours didn't exist back then. It just there's a lot of different things that have pulled people's attention, but you know, in a game where handle is growing from the computers but declining from the fans is there, 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 there's a thing that has to be worked out. And, and look, I, 
like we said at the top, like I, I don't want them to go away. I, I definitely want them to be here. Um, and I understand the whole idea that if I buy a hundred light bulbs and you buy one, I can probably get them for cheaper. I completely understand that, but there has to be the, the, the home Depot has to realize that if you're going to give the other person, the, the, the person who's buying a hundred light bulbs, a bigger discount, you can't necessarily do it at the expense of the person who's buying the one light bulb. You, you have to find a way that you can still provide that discount for the hundred person, the hundred light bulb person, but not make the one light bulb person pay the pay the way to a certain extent for the others because that's in a, in a way that's kind of what happens. I mean, the, the computers wouldn't play against each other; they want to play against us. Yeah, you know, they want to play against that guy that you described or gal that walks into Saratoga and smells all the smells. That's who the computers want to play against and if they don't have them to play against they don't necessarily want to bang heads with each other yeah i i agree i and i think the 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 biggest uh, customers by volume need to maybe themselves take a step back and say racing like you need to do something about this like you need, you need to make some changes here um and and, and uh not uh not try to crush, uh, not let our presence, meaning the CAWs, uh, be as, as deleterious on, on mainstream players. I, you know, one of the things that has, I think, really defied logic is that we have walked around as a business, and, and particularly in the last five to six years, the growth in this sector has been significant in that period of time. But over that, practically that entire period, uh, we publish will pays, the payouts from multi-race bets, uh, what they're going to pay if any of the horses in the next race win. We've, we've put those on our screen on, on track feeds for 20 seconds, right? 20 minutes before the race. And we've got win odds up on the screen, the live win odds up on the screen on the track feed. And we've got the same information on ADWs. But yet at no point in time have we ever converted what those will pays mean uh, to the final odds. What, what, what a previously closed betting market looks like, you know, converting will pays to imputed win odds, right? This horse is going to pay $10 in the double, $22 in the pick three, based on how this field looks. You know, that makes this horse essentially a four to five shot, right? Or... Uh, whatever it happens to be. This horse is paying $52. Therefore, that that equates in this field that that he is being treated, this horse is being treated as a an eight to one shot, whatever it may be. Um, and yet we're showing live win odds when maybe, you know, 20 minutes before the race, you've got two to 3% of the final win pool in there. And that data is on the screen for the entirety of the lead up to the race. Uh, and the will pay information is flashed there for 20 seconds and is kind of buried on an ADW and you have to click around to get to it. And if you, you, you can't kind of just keep it up there on the screen, if you want to keep a, a attention on the odds, you got to move off of it. Um, we've done a real disservice to our customers when sometimes 40% of the wind pool comes in, in the last one or two tote cycle updates. In some of the other pools, it can be even bigger, right? The super effective pool can double in the last two clicks. 
Um, not as if we're showing superfecta odds, mind you, but it, it does us no good to show our customers that a horse is, is looking like a, a seven to one chance for 25 minutes. And then in the last two clicks goes to seven to two. When a previously closed double pick three, even pick four, pick five pool shows this horse has probably been being treated as a seven to two shot the whole way from many of the same customers who are betting in the wind pool right now. And certainly the same customers who are going to make that horse seven to two in the last few seconds. It's got to just like basic customer service. Why do you want to give your ordinary customer a reason to huff and puff about the, the degradation of, of mainstream horse playing when all these late odds changes, when you've got previously closed betting markets that could have told you that this horse is probably going to be seven to two, 20 minutes out. And yet we have all this heartache when it happens on a regular basis. Um, those sorts of things, I think, are very simple, not even solutions, but they're, they're just fixes to the perception problem that uh, this horse looked like a seven to two shot the whole way on the pick threes and in the doubles. Why did we let our customers think this horse is going to be seven to one by continuing to show win odds of seven, six, seven, six, eight, seven, six, seven, eight, all the way along. And then boom, down to seven to two after the, you know, uh, 10, 15 seconds into the race. Um, it's, it's totally unnecessary and avoidable heartache. Uh, no one has done it yet. I think that there is going to be a track in the very near future that does. That'll be exciting. But it's a way to help us manage the existence of high-frequency betters with mainstream horse players. And remember, J.K., I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but you know, from a listener's perspective, compare it to the sports betting experience, the fixed odds experience where the, the price you bet is the price you get, right? And, and if that is where all of the growth in legal wagering has taken place in the last five, six years in this country to show your customer seven to one for 20 minutes when it's very likely that horse ends up seven to two. Um, it's just kind of like long-term, it's just bad customer service and we could be doing better. And I think that would go a long way towards helping solve that real bad kind of pit of the stomach feeling as a better when you say, Oh, geez, I'm about to get crushed here. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's, so I've long said that, right. And, 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 and I want to, I was going to ask you, what are some suggestions you have for making a more harmonious uh, life with the CAWs? That's obviously one of them. Um, I want to, I want to also ask you, what, what do you see some of the racetracks doing? I know you focused on uh, Del Mar trying to make some changes. We've, we've talked a little bit about Naira. So I want to go over, some changes that you do like that you've seen, but, but before I want to go back to your point about the odd shift, which, which is a huge one because I think to the, to the, I think that the, the, the CAW's involvements, the most apparent thing to the common player is, is what you've described that late odd shift. And, and you've, you've explained it well with the, with the will pays with those pools being closed, because I think part of the mechanism that I want to explain to people that what happens in those situations is that the computers are using that information of those will pays when they see that a horse is supposed to be five to one 
based on the closed pick three pool, the closed pick four pool, the closed double pool, and even the active exacta pool, when they can see that a horse is supposed to be five to one and that horse is 10 to one, at the very last second, they are going to make that horse much closer to five to one than they are to 10 to one because that's the game they're playing. The pools that are closed in a market that is similar to the market that is about to be closed has said that this horse is supposed to be five to one. So they know that that's what the market believes. And they know that if they can get five to one or six to one or seven to one on a horse that's supposed to be five to one, they are now playing that game that we talked about earlier where they're going to get as close to breaking even as possible because they're making smart wagers that have no emotion in them. And then that's going to help them get to their goal of breaking even and then trying to, you know, uh, collect on their, on their rebate. And, and to your point, why no one's done it. I've said it to a number of people in racing that are smart, a number of, a number of people of racing that have the power to do it. A number of people of racing that are, 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 are sympathetic to the, to the horse player and understand the battle we have. And it's just like, it's just, it just hasn't been done. And I, and, and it's, because you, you can avoid it. Just tell me the horse. Tell me the horse is 10 to 1 right now, but tell me the horse projects to go off at 6 to 1, and then now I can't get on Twitter and complain when that last flash comes down to 5 to 1. Yeah. Uh, Daily Racing Form has actually done this for a while. I, I know it's in their Formulator product where they have projected odds. Uh, Amwager, the ADW, uh, has a, a function that does this sometimes, and uh, I think they call it True Odds or something like that. Uh, that also um, uses the same sort of approach. Uh, those, those are helpful. Uh, it needs to be a little more widespread. And I think we need to be educating our audience and educating our customer base a little bit more. I mean, the number of people who do not realize that the New York Racing Association has closed the wind pool to CAW betters inside of two minutes to post is still a very large, I, I believe it's 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 a wide swath of, of mainstream horse players that do not realize that, that do not know that that the the late pick five is essentially CAW free. Uh, the same with the pick six at Naira, right? There there has been no other track in in America that has done more or, or track operator that has done more uh, to help control the negative effect of the CAWs more than the Naira. Um, there have been some, some attempts from, uh, first, uh, you know, reportedly, um, to, to control that a little bit more, right. To de-incentivize wind pool participation. And that was something we reported in the sharks and minnows paper, um, recently from, from that, what Delmar is planning to do this summer. Now, you know, I penned the majority of that paper. Uh, and, and we did call it a bit of window dressing and it's not intended to be harsh. Uh, but at the end of the day, you cannot deny that the, the wind pool is the smallest pool by percentage of participation from the CAWs, right? So it's already where they're playing the smallest. The impact may be the greatest optically and from a perception standpoint to the horse player, that you see the horse go from eight to five, because in that last flash, you know, here comes 14% of the money and it's going to all come in in one shot. It's the biggest shot typically to the pool. And, uh, 
you know, at the end of the day, they're still allowed to participate, right? So, so no one has has really gone as far as Naira has, and you often left out of this conversation too is Oaklawn, uh, who, generally speaking, I mean, granted, it's not a year-round signal, but uh, they have um, pretty much kept a, a lot of the the, the main CAW play out for a long time. Uh, but we've not been able to get records out of Arkansas to, to really confirm that. But that, that is the, 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 the story from, from those who are participating. Um, so, yeah, look, we, we, we can do so much more and we should be doing so much more. Because at the end of the day, racing social license to operate comes from the fans, the horse players who stand up, participate in the sport on a regular basis. And we need as much of it as we can. Uh, there are so many people that touch a horse's life, uh, both on the backside and away from it, to get them to that point in their life, to care for them afterwards. Um, but between the grooms, the assistants, the farriers, the physios, the the vets and their assistants, uh, it, it is such an ecosystem. Um, I'm, I'm here in Lexington where I make my home now. Um, it, it's just such a a wonderful um, place to to live and and to to see the fields and the the farms. It's beautiful, uh, and, and it is an, an agricultural economy unto itself. Uh, it drives so much investment, uh, and we need to be engaging the customers of the end result of that investment. Uh, it's really what TIF was founded for in the first place. If we can make the sport better for horse owners and horse players, we will make it better for everyone else that's associated with the ecosystem of the sport. And our research over the last five years, we, we st- first tackled the CAW topic back in 2020, uh, kind of three months or four months into the pandemic, uh, really spent a lot of time kind of in, in lockdown, so to speak, researching that and learning a lot more about it. And it's evolved since then, of course. You, know, you can go back and read that first paper and it's like, oh, geez, you know, we, we really didn't know a whole lot uh, at that point. We thought we knew uh, plenty and, and we were no certainly more than most, but it continues to evolve and so does their participation. But if we cannot as a sport, uh, you know, essentially concierge the experience of our horse players, make it as positive uh, as possible, uh, we're not keeping pace uh, with other sports, other gambling ventures, other wagering options. Uh, and that's bad for horse racing and all of its associated ecosystem. Uh, and so that's why it is such an important topic in what we have studied and researched. Uh, the information that we put out there is truly independent, JK. Um, we use Del Mar's data uh, from the state of California. Um, and I had a couple of people ask me, it's like, you know, I got, I got it on from both sides. It's like, what, what's with the hate of Del Mar? I'm like, I don't hate Del Mar at all. Um, and other people saying, wow, this is so great that Del Mar's engaging. I'm like, well, yes, both, you know, it's not, um, we, we use Del Mar as the largest independent track in California, a state that has tremendous data on this topic. Uh, and, and it was, uh, you know, it was certainly nothing against them. I think Del Mar was essentially just representative of the, 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 the state of CAW betting on 
U.S. Yeah. racing. And I think that, like, in all fairness, like, to be, you know, I think just to just to say this out loud, like, the you know, the, the people that think you're picking on Del Mar, I think Del Mar just, it just happened to work out because it's a big racetrack that has a state in which they provide a lot of information. Totally. I'm sure you would love to see if from a CAW standpoint for trying to make some of the points and trying to find some of the things you want, you guys want to find. I'm sure you would love to see what Churchill Downs does on a derby day. I'm totally. sure you would love to see Breeders' Cup information with those huge pools, with international involvement. I'm sure you'd love to be able to have a, a, a Belmont through Saratoga with New York because of the consistency of those pools or Gulfstream or, 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 or you know, racetracks that have a lot of casinos and or a racino aspect. I, I don't, you know, the idea that you picked the Del Mar because you wanted to pick on Del Mar. I think Del Mar's setup just happened to provide enough information. Like you yep. mentioned, these people are very private with all of this. So yeah, the, they the data was out there, uh, the state, you know, the states, uh, the California Horse Racing Board provides this information. Unfortunately, they've changed the way in which some of it appears now, which is very frustrating. If you're doing research on this topic, where it was one way for 15 years practically, and now they've changed it literally all of a sudden in the, the aftermath of some questions being asked about it. So that has certainly been frustrating. But uh, yeah, it, it you know, I love Del Mar. Del Mar is a great place. It's a, it's a gem uh, in the sport. They've done tremendous work with safety uh, in racing. They put on a great race day experience. The margaritas can be a little expensive. <laughs> There's no question, but, uh, but by gosh, the fish tacos are fantastic. Right. Um, yeah, but You know what? Like, yeah, I'm okay with that. I'm okay. But so, so about, so let's, 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 let's give Del Mar. Let's I'm going to say this. Let's give Del Mar some credit. I also want to talk about, you know, in depth, some of the changes that Naira has made. And I want you to talk about what Del Mar is doing specifically. But I will say this before you say it. I want, we say it all the time on these airwaves. We want to commend racetracks and the other side of the sport. If you're a horse player, the other side of the sport who is trying to listen to us and trying to make adjustments and trying to compromise, although they might not see it um the way that we're telling them they're making efforts at it and and i want to commend racetracks for trying but but i also want to remind racetracks that if you are going to make the adjustments your way please don't throw the baby out with the bathwater when it doesn't necessarily work because you did it your way you didn't hear what we were saying like my example would be like canterbury like when they when they, when they drop their takeout and then other racetracks are like, well, look, Canterbury dropped their takeout. It didn't really move the needle. Yeah. But, but it, with all due respect to our friends at Canterbury, they're, they're not the signal that would be if Keeneland were to drop their takeout or New York were to drop their takeout or Stronic if, 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 or, or Churchill or Breeders' Cup, those would have a more significant impact because there's more eyeballs on it. So it's somewhere in the middle. I think we need to all land. I just, I don't, I, I hear you. I appreciate you, Delmar, for making chances or changes. But if it doesn't work, please don't say, ah, see, told you guys it doesn't work. Yeah, we don't have a long kind of threshold of tolerance for, you know, um, I'm not going to call them scientific approaches, but, you know, really studying the impact and the accurate impact of different policies. What I think is undeniable is that 
the growth of CAW betting has clearly been commensurate with increasing their rebates and, and pricing matters. Now they're incredibly price sensitive and they are so they are as price sensitive as they are because of their efficiency, right? They, if you, if you do drop my rebates, I'm going to drop my handle. Right. Um, so they, they are the greatest example that pricing matters, but over the years, uh, I think we have seen that, that mass market takeout rates, uh, pricing in, in horse racing to, to betting customers has essentially just, it's just gone up. Um, you know, if we go back 40, 50 years, I think blended takeout was probably on the order of 12, 13% and has slowly, maybe it's even longer now, but, but I, I remember reading a piece that I think, uh, the late uh, Ogden Phipps had written back in Blood Horse uh, a long time ago. Craig Burnick had tweeted it, uh, I think it was some some point, maybe 1971 or so, uh, talking about the need to be competitive with takeout. Um, real, real quick, Pat, let's just tell the, the listeners, because I think, I, you know, I, I realize some of this stuff we know, like, obviously, and I think some people don't. What, what Blended takeout today is what? And that top-tier elite – what would you think their blended rebate is versus um, someone who bets $100,000 on express bet every year? So blended takeout is essentially the, the total amount that is withheld from each bet. Uh, and it goes to a combination of things. Some of it goes to purses. Some of it goes to the bet taker. Uh, some goes to the host track directly. Um, some of it goes to various taxes and things like that, source market fees, those sorts of things. And, and, and the word blended is that the win takeout is going to be lower than a trifecta takeout. So at the end of the day, when you say blended, you just pretend you're betting all of those things. Your blended takeout is kind of your average takeout for what it is that you're betting. If you're a win better only, your blended takeout is going to be a lot lower than my blended takeout who if I'm a straight pick six better. Okay, correct. Sorry, go ahead. Yep, exactly. So that number now is probably around 21% for the mainstream horse player who is not receiving uh, rebates, anything beyond kind of typical, um, you know, small little uh, token uh, money backs, promos, those sorts of things. So about 21% uh, is, is what we're looking at right now. Uh, whereas, you know, at the very high end of the CAW spectrum, um, we think that there are their blended takeout or to another way to look at, you know, how much are they getting in rebates? Um, probably on the order of uh, nine, 9% or so um, I'd say with, which, which probably suggests that they're looking at a rebate of roughly 12% uh, on average. So, um, so the across average player, all the average player is, is putting 91 cent or I'm sorry, is putting, uh, 79 cents of their dollar into the pool while the CAWs are putting 91 cents in essentially they're, 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 well, they're having 91 cents of power basically is what I'm, is I'm trying Correct. to, you'll say, Correct. Yes. yeah, 91 no, cents of power. 100%, yeah, yeah, no, I, I would agree with that assessment. Uh, it is, um, you know, so, so there's this natural inequality there. Um, and, I think the thing to recognize is they're all going into the same pool, right? So we are sharing the same investment vehicle 
but at different price points and at different access abilities. So you could be uh, an, a, a mainstream horse player that has the ability to upload bets into a file uh, through your ADW, right? And so, so there's a day that comes along and you want to bet um, a pick six force out. And so you and your buddies put together a, a whole bunch of tickets. You might have like a thousand 20 cent combinations, right? You're not going to sit there and you punch them all in, but you may actually put a program together, create that, upload it to your ADW and, and enter it. You're typically limited to about three bets per second uh, to, to get those in in one shot. So, so for the course of a minute, it's going to take you, um, you're going to get 180 of those bets in in one minute. So you, in order for you to get that in before post time, the, the ordinary customer is going to have to, to enter. And I say the ordinary customer, the ordinary customer is using a file upload to, to put yeah. in a thousand 20 cent combinations. Uh, what have you, you, is, you would need five and a half minutes yeah. to do those thousand wagers. The, 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 just if you're playing around at home with this idea, you just take the number of combinations divided by 60 divided by three. And that tells you how much time you need. So think about that. If you wanted to do 2000, then you need 10 minutes, which means that you would have to put them in before possibly a gate scratch in the paddock before possibly a, a horse gets loose in the paddock. And then they, they get the horse back before a horse breaks out of the gate. And then they circle back around. You have to put your file upload in, in a timely manner in order to get all of your wagers in. It's happened to me before I have lost track of time, did a file upload and didn't get in like 30% of my tickets. And now I'm rooting in that first leg for the nine horse to lose because I didn't have all of my nine horse tickets in and it, it the nine horse did lose, but yeah. So, okay. Continue Pat. Yeah. And, and whereas the CAW better uh, is typically able to just press hypothetically the, the one button and, and dump all their bets uh, in one shot and they all, they all get in. Right. And that so that's the access thing. Like, right. Like I don't have a problem with the CAWs having a better price than me to a certain extent because they're betting more than me. It's the light bulb thing. I can deal with that aspect of it. I think they want to try to make it a little bit more equitable, but whatever, do your thing. I get it. But the, the access thing is a huge problem for me in terms of fairness. Just let me have that same access. And if I can have that same access, then, 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 then I can compete at a better, at a better, at a better rate. Because you're able to essentially consider every possible variable up until the last second. Yeah. Um, and then think about like, and, and another thing too, just other scenarios, Pat, I wanted to run by people to understand the difference here is there's been days we've seen them at Saratoga where there'll be a pick six carryover and you want to file upload your pick six carryover. But let's just say it, it's harder to do to spend this much money with a dollar minimum, but just bear with me. Let's say you got, you know, 4,800 combinations. So, you know, 4,800 divided by 60 divided by three, you need 26 minutes to, 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 to upload that. But, but what if they do that situation where it has happened to me before where they took the eighth off the turf? Yeah. Right. And so I've already had to hit file upload in order to be able to get it in. But now I have a bunch of MTOs I didn't use. I have a bunch of turf horses that aren't running. It's all this nonsense. I, that's something that I, as a normal average 
you know, uh, player have to deal with while the CAWs don't have to deal with that problem. And in that particular example, granted, Naira doesn't let the CAWs into the pick six anymore, but that is is highlighting kind of a, a, a real baseline infrastructure problem that the industry has, which is that the paramutual, literally the tote betting infrastructure is very, very old, right? It was not established to process uh, bets in the way in which modern customers want to be placing them. The vast majority of players, mainstream players, are not putting in 4,800 combinations. I get that. But the sport needs to find a way to accommodate them better. And there are a couple tote companies that operate in this country. There are other tote companies internationally. Hong Kong, for example, operates their own. Um, it is, you know, there is a uh, I think we're at a bit of a technological reckoning that you know, in paramutual wagering is very important, right? You, you get a guaranteed cut of every bet that is made. That is very valuable to the participants in this sport and the bet takers themselves. Um, but we have not evolved the technology to present uh, all of our customers with equal access uh, and, and the fairness that, that goes along with that. And if we want JK's $4,800 combinations in the pick six, which I think everyone in the sport would agree, yes, we, we want that, right? Every The goal of paramutual wagering is to build churn because you're getting a piece of every bet as opposed to fixed odds where the house is essentially taking on the customer. Uh, you you need to evolve total wagering. You know, Look at Superfecta betting today right now. Uh, this has been the, the case for the entirety of the life of super effective betting in America. When a super effective bet is placed uh, on a U.S. horse race, um, the bet taker, so your ADW or your on-track bet. So, so you're at standing at Saratoga betting a super effecta at uh, Horseshoe, Indianapolis. You enter the ticket. Uh, Saratoga, Naira, will know what your super effecta is. But Horseshoe Indianapolis, the host, does not know. They are merely told how much your Superfecta bet is worth, saying, we've got $100 of JK's money in this Superfecta at Horseshoe Indianapolis today. Uh, he's got $100 in the pool. So they know the total, but they don't know the combinations. So the race is run. The result is 11179. And Horseshoe Indianapolis's mutual room sends out a message to all the remote bet takers out there saying, the winning combination here is 11179. Tell us, how many winning tickets do you have? And then Saratoga's mutual room will come back and say, we've got six. And congratulations, JK's was one of them. Uh, and and the, the Nassau OTB says, we've got two. And Park says, they've got uh, four. And Express Bet says we've got 64. And uh, Twin Spire says we've got uh, 207 $1 dime comment, whatever it is, uh, on the Superfecta. That's the way that works. So, so your, your betting information isn't even transmitted to the host site because it was deemed too onerous to the tote system to be able to process that information, right? Considering where we are as a world, 
the fact that that still exists today is just, it's just such a bad sign for how tote technology has evolved uh, in this space and, and is really just you know, a, a signal that there's, there's a real need for some evolution. And that's across the board, right, in, in right. all the tote technology and security and- issues. And it's obviously a, a, a it's obviously a problem that needs to be addressed. But but Pat, like, and I'm sure you've you've dug into this a little bit. It, who's I mean, is it is the problem of why it isn't getting fixed? Is it because we have four, three to four major tote companies? They all are kind of. It's like who's gonna who's gonna take the step to make that big payment to get that that technology updated, where do you see the the obstacle and why that hasn't been updated? Just boiling it down. I think my instinct is that overall, the actual business of wagering on racing is not as important as it should be to everyone involved in the sport. And the reason for that, I think is, is that, uh, you know, so, so much of, of prize money now comes from other sources. So a state like California, Texas, they're places that really rely on wagering because they don't have a lot of uh, other supplementary sources. They don't have casinos or, or other forms of, of wagering that are supporting that. Texas does have a, a tax issue and putting aside the fact they're not able to export their signal right now. But California really is an island in the sense that uh, prize money essentially is only coming from wagering on racing. Um, but aside from them, you know, almost everywhere else in the country, um, of these jurisdictions have, have gotten the, the primary source of prize money is coming from things other than actually wagering on live horse racing. And it's a pure incentive play. You know, my incentive is to grow that and keep the horsemen happy. And, and that has worked. We have, I think, successfully not outright ignored, but we just have not kept pace with the evolution of, of where racing wagering needs to go and as someone who has been, you know, betting on races for as long as I can remember and, and caring about it, you know, it, it's a problem. Uh, it needs to get better. We, we need to treat this like the serious gambling enterprise that it can be. Um, I, I say this a lot and it's no disrespect to anybody who's in the business, but my greatest source of optimism for the future is that it feels like we're not really trying all that hard. Uh, from the, the wagering side of the sport, uh, we could be doing so much better than we are. And so I, I do have optimism for the future because I think there's so many other things we could be doing. Let's talk about let's let's talk about what Del Mar did. And let's talk about which I know you did in the in the in the in the white paper sharks and minnows that you can you can the the, the Internet can find racingthinktank.com. You'll be able to find that if you want to dive down into it. Let's talk about what they did and let's talk about your opinion on maybe what they could have, how they could have tweaked it, what your thoughts of what you think is going to happen. Just break down uh, what you, what you, what you found when you uh, researched that, that decision. So uh, when we were getting ready to publish the paper uh, sharks and minnows, uh, Delmar got involved a little more and and found out we were doing this and, and they got engaged and we asked them some questions and they came back and provided some answers. And within that told us that they were going to take a step to, uh, try to mitigate late odds changes in the wind pool. Uh, they were going to change the incentive structure uh, of their CAW players, which are obviously the biggest individual players that that they have and that, that are exist across all of racing. 
Now we probed for the specifics of you know the exact numbers, but you know, those could not be provided to us. Um, based on some conversations we've had with people that are aware of such things, we believe that essentially what they're doing is offering a bigger rebate to the CAWs to bet outside of two minutes to post. So, so farther away from the start of the race in the wind pool. And then as you get inside of two minutes to post, that rebate go, goes down significantly. So maybe if they were betting with four minutes to post, I'm making this up now, JK, but uh, you know the rebate might be uh, 8%. Uh, and then if you bet between two and three minutes to post, the rebate might be 6%. And then at uh, inside of two minutes to post, the rebate might be 3%. Uh, so they are trying to incentivize the CAWs to put more money into the wind pool earlier by giving them a higher rebate. Of course, the price that the CAWs pay is they'll have less knowledge of what the final odds on those horses will be uh, by betting early. Um, and in most cases, when when we see those late, you know, they're, they're trying to mitigate late odds changes. Now, our research indicated that roughly 14% of total wagering at Del Mar last year came uh, in the wind pool came from the biggest 15, 16 or so accounts, uh, CAW accounts that, that, that we uh, have found. Um, it's, a, it, it's a token step. It's a first step. Uh, it is believed that Santa Anita was doing this uh, as well, based on some reporting from Dan Ross and Thoroughbred Daily News and some, some dialogue there. Um, to, to what effect? Um, it's tough to say. Uh, is it as uh, dramatic as some other steps? No, but it's a first step and we're appreciative of at least that. Um, could there be more done? Yes, we think that, you know, maybe try uh, to emulate what Naira's done. Cut the CAWs off entirely from the wind pool with two minutes to post. Sometimes they'll participate. Maybe they won't at all. Um, but it's a good interim step to uh, create a, 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 a more kind of a safer environment for mainstream horse players to participate, leaving the wind pool to them in the final two minutes. Um, so, yeah. But I, you know, but I like that. I mean, I, I, you know, to me, it's like, it's kind of like the, you know, when you're, when you're dealing with the, the CAWs, it's kind of like, you know, uh, I'm from Texas, so this is my best example, but like giving free, giving a coupon for free queso. It's like, who just, just give the CAWs that say, sure, you know, we'll, we'll, you know, we're going to take this thing away from you, but it, it doesn't really, it doesn't really hurt. It doesn't really hurt to give, to, to, to take that away from them, to give them quote unquote, that free queso, because like you said, they're only betting they're not betting that much in the wind pool anyways, compared to their other ones. You have a chart on your, on your, on your white paper, but for those that are listening, 14 in 2022, 14% of the CAW's money, the big ones went to the wind pool versus 14% of the wind pool was CAW. Sorry. 14% of the wind pool was CAW versus 38% of the pick five pools of CAW's 35% of the pick six pool was the CAWs. So they're significant. They're more they're, That's where they're putting all their money. So taking this away from them from a customer service standpoint, although it might make the CAWs a little bit annoyed, it's a strategic move in my opinion, which is also that Naira did by, well, they were a little bit more aggressive with theirs, but it's like, okay, I know you're mad at us for this a little bit, but you're still going to come back. Right. 
And I think the answer is yes, we're coming back. They're just ordering something different. Yeah. I, I think it's a, a perfect assessment. Um, it, it, they are a small piece of it, of the wind pool. Now the second smallest pools are the place in the show pool. And then the, then the double um, our research from previous years, when the CHRB made this information available, the biggest better in America pretty much doesn't bet doubles, right? So imagine betting, you know, $60 million at Del Mar in 2021, maybe I think it was, and betting $0 in the double pool. That's, that's what we found. Um, so it, a it's a, <laughs> right. I mean, you know, if anything, this is the sort of thing you look at and you say, all right, well, if I don't want to have to fight against the, the CAWs who are, um, you know, clearly a, a, a big portion of the try and the super and the pick four and the pick five, where should I be? Where do I want to be to, to maybe get what I think might be quote unquote, a better price, better opportunity, where I don't have to fight them off as much. It's the win play show and double pool. So a little bit of a, little bit of a tangent. Why do you feel, what is your, just your knowing the game, knowing wagering, knowing pools and, and doing all the work you do. Why do you think the CAWs avoid the double? Why, why do you think that, that that specific group does that? What's, if you know, just. Yeah. It's, I think it's, it's, it's the price discovery that uh, the, the biggest player uh, in America uh, based on the CHRB data, uh, if that was, uh, you know, stretched across all of American racing, which we have no reason to believe it isn't. Uh, and and you know, it's followed on by information we've seen from Florida through public records requests and things like that. Uh, it's price discovery. I, I don't, you know, that player probably just does not want to tip his or her hand uh, totally to show everybody else you know, if they if they came along and ended up being 10 or 12 percent of the double pool individually, they would really kind of hone in on the price, the final price for the next race. And I think that's really all it is, JK. I, I just think it's 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 too much price discovery for everybody else. So why give yeah. them a, a totally free look at it? Uh, well, they're by, just by better off. Yeah, they're better off not showing their hand and playing the pick three because the pick three is not an open pool that shows, you know, there's not probables, you know, obviously you have the probables to battle too with, yep. with the double. Yep. And um, if you're, if you're betting a billion dollars a year and 140 million of that is going into the wind pool, um, you know, do I, I, I'm sure they probably will have figured out at some point in the past that, maybe our edge in the wind pool goes up by half a percent if we don't bet the double. Yeah. Right? This, and I guess you have the, there's the, also the thing of two there, there still is a certain level of handicapping involved. It's automated. I think they take all of the human touch away from it. It's, you know, I'm sure it's speed figure based. I'm sure it's trainer stat based. I'm sure it's, uh, you know, racetrack bias based. I'm sure it's breeding based, but I think that, I think by also avoiding the doubles, I'm just theorizing here by avoiding the doubles, you eliminate more randomness by having two different events have to take place. You can just keep it to one event and, 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 and just try to maintain that one event, like not having to run two events together. I don't know if that's as much a concern for them considering how much they pound the pick end bets. And I think they bet them very efficiently. Um, I think there's but, easier. I think there's more meat on the bone in those, though. Yes, so it's worth right, them right, doing right. that. I don't think there's any meat on the double bone because, like, to your point of that price discovery is they're they're showing their hand. They're yeah. giving away 
they're through the through the probable pool. I mean, obviously they can come at the last possible yes. second, but it's also probably a lot less predictable because there's so much information available. Oh, agreed, agreed. Uh, they, I think, too many horse players discount the fact that um, these players spend a ton of money to perfect their approach. Um, I've tried to make some uh, some some estimates on this, but you know, if if the Average uh, CAW is is turning out a, a 10% gross profit. Um, you know, so so let's say they bet a billion dollars, they're they're winning essentially a hundred million dollars a year. If they're if they're spending, if their expenses are uh, a quarter of that, right? So so their 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 net profit is 70, uh, 75 million. They will have spent twenty five million dollars executing on their wagering. So think about that. You've got Joe Q horse player buying a form, uh, getting the sheets, um, you know, going to the track, buying the margarita, uh, you know, hot dog, et cetera. Uh, and you've got um, a, a couple other players who may, who are spending millions and millions, sometimes tens of millions of dollars a year to perfect their system to approach wagering. They should be good. They should be the best horse players, and they are the best horse players, right? At a very large scale, um, and and it it turns off some people, uh, and I understand why. But when when we we hear that and we see, oh, you know, they're they knew, or you know, they're right, or why is it that almost always when the price gets crunched, those are the horses that win, because they're good, they they know what they're doing. Uh, they're covering their bases and they do it very, very well. And they should be getting better over time, right? With more and more experience of doing this, uh, the system should be getting smarter and more intelligent. I think they are. Uh, these are all challenges that ordinary horse players face. How do we approach particular races? Uh, how do we approach wagering? This is, you know, by all means, bet as you wish. Bet with your head and not over it, but it, it helps to recognize kind of the state of where the business is. And I think that's really all we're trying to do here. We're, we're putting this picture out to uh, the industry showing here's how the market has evolved at just one track in, in recent years. Um, we think it's problematic. There should be some adjustments uh, over time uh, to, to make this a little bit better. And I'm hopeful that there are some tracks out there that are listening. Uh, I've, I've heard from track executives who suggest, Hey, you know, uh, like the paper, you know, I think we need to maybe move in this direction, do a couple of things here. But I've also heard from some, from some track executives who just say like, I just can't be the one to stop this. Like, it's not, it's out of my control. I can't turn away this money. I can't, you know, uh, I can't do more. You know, I'm just small track. I've, I've heard that plenty of times too, but so it takes, it, it really, I think takes a village of, um, the sport. And, and that's why, you know, we've put this information out there um, with, you know, Craig Burnick being the support behind it to, to get it out and in the public space. Uh, Craig has been just incredible. I know he's been on your show in the past, JK. Uh, look, he, without him, none of this is possible. Um, he cares so much about the business and, uh, you know, all, all we have tried to do for the last five years 
is to uh, publish information that we think, if acted upon by the sport's existing bodies, will improve outcomes for everyone associated with the sport. And what are some additional changes that you want to see? If, if uh, you know, I'm obviously it's near and dear to my heart, and we've talked a lot about Del Mar. Um, Naira has made a lot of changes, and 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 you can highlight those in, in passing while you kind of set up this next thing. What are some of the things that if someone gave you the keys to a place like Naira that you would love to see them try because they have the product to support, they have the fan base to support, I think things that other people might not have the product to take the chances. Well, um, Naira specific, um, you know, I would just love to see fixed odds come in to complement the parimutuel product. Um, and I think Naira's maybe not that far off from it. Um, I think they've been a little, you know, they've certainly discussed this point publicly a little bit more than some others. And, and I think seem pretty open to it. Um, you know, I, I don't know how we can evolve uh, as a sport without, and, and I don't just mean offering fixed odds. I don't mean on, on all bet types, right? This is not replicating parimutuel offerings into fixed odds. I'm looking at it as, we need to create as many markets and derivative products of horse racing as we could possibly get. Because there are customers who want to bet hit show versus uh, Derma Sotogake, right? In the, in the derby, yeah. right? Um, and, and there are people who want to bet Archangelo against Angel of Empire in the Belmont. And they're, the only thing, their opinion is, I don't like Angel of Empire in this race because when Brad Cox adds blinkers in a graded stakes race, he's like one for, you know, four or, 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 or bad example, one for 10, right? Whatever the number was, uh, and it was certainly wasn't one for four. He barely, he just didn't do it. And I looked at that and I said, what is going on here? Horse ran a great race in the Derby. He was coming at the end. Now you're adding blinkers on them in the Belmont stakes. Jeez. Like I just, it just doesn't seem like the right move to me. I think I'm going to be against angel of empire. If my opinion in the Belmont is I'm totally against angel of empire. My only legal betting option today is to bet that opinion somehow paramutually. And maybe I'm not really able to do that well or efficiently. Um, but in a fixed odds environment where I can, you know, bet matchups uh, that are priced appropriately, I can do that. And, and I can engage the sport in that fashion. So that to me is something I, I think we need. I don't view, uh, and I never have viewed fixed odds as a threat uh, of cannibalizing certain pools. I, I view it as, as, as really widening the wagering opportunities that exist and finding a way to get everybody involved uh, at some particular wagering point uh, in the sport, not just the limited eight, nine, ten pools that we offer for a race. And there's there's two thoughts about this, uh, and one, and we can go whichever direction we want. The first one is the idea that you mentioned is a real idea that I've heard from horsemen. I've heard from racetracks. I've heard from horsemen and racetracks, and I've heard from horsemen telling on racetracks and racetracks telling on horsemen that they are scared that it's going to cannibalize the pools and why they're concerned is because the takeout rate that you 
can charge in a wind pool is much higher than the takeout rate you would have to charge to make a 50-50 proposition, a sided proposition, fixed odds work. You, you cannot run a fixed odds market with 10% takeout. It, it just it just won't work. It's why the roulette bet didn't work. It's why when the Breeders' Cup tried to do the heads-up bets, it didn't It's just too it's too hard. There's math behind that. It's too hard to do that. So the, the racetracks, some of the racetracks and some of the horsemen's groups are scared to, to Pat's point that a, that a, that a paramutual, and I'm sorry, that a, that a fixed odds model would take away from that. But him and I both agree. That's not true. Especially if you create other opportunities that are congruent to the, to, to the game, but they don't, they don't, you could still have your wind pool. You could still have that, but let me bet that Irad's going to have more wins than Jose on a day. Let me take minus 200 on that and let me, and let me have fun for the day where I'm not battling against the computers and I'm going to come back on Sunday because I made a little bit of money that day. I saw the ball go through the hoop. Allow me to play Chad versus Todd to win the meet and enjoy and, and, and tune in every day to watch all the way to the end love the game, learn the game, fall in love with the game, have a good experience with the game. Instead of banging me on the head with three horse exacta boxes on an entire day where there's no chance in hell that if I did that all summer, I would win because I can't beat the computers playing that inefficiently. And that's what this is a fixed odds is a great opportunity to give players a chance to, to, to remain involved in this game until they can get to a point where they can compete against the computers, which is at least a five-year process. The fear of fixed odds not working or potentially cannibalizing certain pools should not in and of itself be the reason not to do something. Um, we have done plenty of, of damage by essentially not changing, right? Our wagering menus look almost exactly the same as they did 20 years ago with very limited changes. Uh, you cannot go into a casino today and find the same slot machines from 20 years ago, right? It, it's just, you know, that is just not what I, you can't go to a bank and find them using the same ATM they used 20 years ago. It, it, we, we need to evolve um, without having made any real substantive changes to the paramutual product. Um, the industry has changed dramatically. Um, and fortunately for the horsemen, uh, prize money has been supplemented from other sources. Uh, so. And, and, and it's, it's the, the, this idea of cannibalism, I think is, is important because I, I think it comes up a lot in these situations. It's like, but it's, it's the wrong word because if you're providing something that's better and people gravitate towards it, it's not that it's cannibalizing the other thing. It's the other thing wasn't that good. Right. So it's like, it, Correct. or it wasn't it, so so you and you it also it also it. discounts the the thought that the 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 bet takers the bookmakers themselves are not going to come to the paramutual pool to lay off some of their liabilities so the, the, there's even the the case that can be made that uh, in a fixed odds environment such as that that uh, actually some of the paramutual is enlivened because the bet the, the bookmakers are coming back and, and participating uh, paramutually as, as a, essentially a hedge for themselves. Um, so, uh, you know, let, let the market uh, determine that. Um, you know, 
the Australian example is well noted. It's out there. Uh, you've got Australians that are leading this charge in New Jersey right now. It's moved very slowly through Monmouth, um, but they've, they've started adding some simulcast tracks now, and they've got an online presence, and it's it's moving along. It's slow, but I'm, I'm hopeful. Um, the existing paramutual powers are are very ingrained, right? And they've, they've got a stranglehold on the business. The problem is the wagering business has changed dramatically, and they have not. Uh, but they continue to have this, this fierce hold on a paramutual-only product in a world that has gotten decidedly non-paramutual. Um, and, you know, it has to be said that, that many of the American racing operators allow their product to be sold internationally at fixed odds. So it's perfectly fine for uh, English customers to be betting on American racing at fixed odds and tracks to receive a commission from that. But we don't allow, outside of New Jersey, uh, American individual state customers to to be uh, participating at the same level. I think we would see um, a much more approachable sport. Like you said, bets that would, would, would give ordinary fans that maybe not, aren't even betters, um, you know, for, for a small stake, uh, a, a day's worth of enjoyment um, on what could be, you know, toss of the coin type stuff. Oh my God. I mean, it's, it's just, you, you, you know, it's, it's, you just think about it. Like, I mean, we've all been in this position. If you're listening to this podcast, you've probably been in this position where you've taken a new person to the racetrack. It is a daunting, yeah. daunting task to try to explain to them what to do. How, how, how should I play? What, how, what, what do I do? And I always usually just tell them how much do you want to bet? $100? Okay, I'm going to bet 1000 today. I'll give you 10% of my action. I'll tell you what we're rooting for. Because <laughs> because it's easy. I don't it's easier. I want them to have a good experience. What am I going to tell them? Uh, you know, bet this 9 to 1 shot for for $20 and the 9 to 1 shot runs up the track because we, you and I and and people that are coming to the track all the time, we can chase the nine to one shots because we're playing every day. And if we hit one, it pays for us. But the guys and gals that are just coming for one day, they can't stomach that, which is also why people make fun of me. You're picking favorites on the show all the time. It's kind of my approach. Like if I can't think of something clever, I'm not going to give you a 17 to one shot because I'm trying to sound smart. And a 17 to one shot runs up the track for the guy who's watching FS one in a bar who just downloaded the Naira bets app. That doesn't do him any favors, right? Like, you know, long-term we can talk about being efficient and, and, and finding value and all that stuff, but like, come on, man. Um, but I do think that like having approachable wagers that are fun is, 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 is a great idea, which is also why on the record, I said that I love the roulette bet. And I will, I will say still today, I love the concept of making an easy wager for new fans I didn't recognize how in the moment when I said that, how troublesome the takeout was, but as a, as a whole, I love the concept. I love the concept. And, and, you know, it's funny, um, Hong Kong, when I was there for three years, uh, during that period of time, they introduced uh, a bet somewhat similar to the roulette bet. They still have it. It's called composite win. And it is like just the simplest, um, it, it turns every race into a three-horse affair. 
where it takes the horses, typically the two horses who are the favorites in the early betting, what, what they call the overnight favorite. So because the betting pools are open uh, so long in Hong Kong for each race, they're, they're open 24 to 36 hours in advance. They take the uh, the very early look at the money and say, all right, we're going to take the overnight favorites and put those two horses in one category. We're going to take the next three horses, the mid-priced horses, we're going to put them in a category, and then we're going to take all the others. Well, H- Hong Kong averages 12 horses a race. You can do that, right? So you take you got one group of two horses, one group of three horses, and then you might have like a group of seven or maybe up to nine horses. And they call it the overnight favorite, the overnight mid-pricers, and the overnight long shots, ABC. And they call it composite win, and it essentially rebalances the bet. It's a win bet on each of the horses in those groups, and it automatically rebalances as their odds rebalance. Look, it's a super high churn, overall low return bet. It's a very low risk approach, and it is designed for the most straightforward, ordinary player. And you know what? For that particular segment of customer, it's an option. It's a way to approach the sport. Um, I am very open to people trying new things. Paramutually, if you can find a way to create customers churning money, winning, betting it back, winning, betting again, winning, betting again, losing, winning, betting, you know, that's going to happen. And and the goal of the paramutual operator should be to create churn, which is why tangent from the previous question, what's one of the other things that should be done? Naira's already done this. Eliminate the jackpot bet, right? The jackpot bet, the single ticket wager bet, is completely antithetical to the paramutual operator's goal of creating churn. It is about limiting churn. It is about funneling all of this money into one individual who happens to be the single ticket winner or getting to a mandatory payout day where, you know, typically I think what we've seen is the CAWs just are are better at, at, at structuring tickets on those days and, and they have cleaned up. And we, we have some examples of that from Florida in the, the Sharks and Minnows paper, but um, you know, you just have to be open to being creative and evolving and ask somebody who's been betting horses for 20 or 25 years, how does the betting menu today look compared to where they were uh, 25 years ago? Not much has changed. Yeah, and you know, and the jackpot problem is magnified by the CAW problem, which is, you know, um, you know, I know I've I've heard rumors of, of 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 the racetracks doing some things, the jackpot racetracks doing some things to like you know not allow the computers to hit the jackpot. They have to wait really to have their day for the the mandatory payout days, but nonetheless, it's just like it, it's it's it, that is a that is a computer wager. And it's even more so a computer wager on the mandatory payout days. When we all get excited about these jackpot mandatory payout days, man, they're, 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 they, they always seem to underpay. And the reason that is, is because of the computers, because those are their big days to swing away and to pick up, uh, to pick up the pieces. That's why they, they, they spend so much in there. And um, I, honestly, I think without jackpot wagers, 
I almost feel like the computer problem drops significantly without the jackpot weight. Not it's it's still an issue that needs to be resolved, but I think that's the biggest issue that it creates. Yeah, it, it's um, look, it's an issue. It's out there. Uh, uh, it, it, tracks should not be offering jackpot bits. I mean, just get rid of them. I think they've looked at them and said, "Oh, this is a huge source of growth, particularly at a low price point." Oh, it, it just kills me to see it because you know you're essentially taking out with, with very limited exceptions. Churchill's uh, single six is 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 a one of those exceptions where the daily effective takeout ends up being like 23%. But in a lot of these, you're taking and, and holding maybe over 40% of the day's net pool. And, um, you know, it's just ugly for ordinary horse players. Um, and they've been attracted into it. And look, sometimes does it pay well? Yeah, of course it does. There's exceptions to every rule. Uh, I get it. But long-term, uh, the jackpot bet should go. Um, they should go yesterday. Some tracks have gotten rid of them. Naira's eliminated. Keelan got rid of their super high five jackpot. Horseshoe Indianapolis got rid of theirs, uh, their jackpot bet most recently. I would love to see more do it. Um, and, and I think uh, I think the sport would be better for it in just one of, of several ways. Yeah, I mean, it's... it's it... <laughs> You know, and I, I think that, you know, well, uh, this is just another topic to, to kind of, that I think goes into the same arena is that the lower minimums. Um, I, I think that a lot of players, um, you know, I mean, my dad included, he loved a 10 cent super and, and um, he never really fully got into a 20 cent rainbow. Cause he never, he just wasn't, he just wasn't, he didn't, he had too much ADD for that. But the idea that it's for the small player, because it's an unapproachable minimum is so incredibly wrong that 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 is also something that I think that could change that could help combat the uh, the the edge that the computers have. Look, all you need to do is look at that that chart towards the top of the Sharks and Minnows paper that shows how the biggest CAWs bet at one track in over the last six years. The more difficult the bet, the more you know, the greater the number of combinations, the more they participate. So, you know, the, they bet more in the try than the exacta. They bet more in the super than the try. They're betting more in the four than the three, more in the five than the four. The only difference there is the pick six, but but I think that's you know with the single ticket that has a has an effect on it. Um, so if you put lower minimums on tougher bets, all you're really doing is, is sucking in mainstream customers who don't necessarily know better and are taking a shot and are betting very inefficiently. And, you know, I, I look at the jackpot six numbers uh, from Gulfstream Park that we, that we published uh, where an example would be that, you know, main, uh, Big CAW performance uh, was positive. I think it was on 15 of the 16 days that we published data for. Had a positive flatbed ROI at Gulfstream Park on the entire day, right? There were some days of uh, January 26, 2020. Uh, the groups did better than 60% flatbed ROI 
on the day. That was a mandatory payout day. The mass market ADWs, remember blended takeout is about 21%. So you would expect on an ordinary day, you should be somewhere around minus 20%, okay? With a big jackpot being forced out, that should reduce the blended takeout for the day. So you think maybe that goes down to minus 17, minus 18%, okay? On that particular day, January 26, 2020 at Gulfstream Park, all customers of the mass market ADWs average an ROI of minus 59.1%. They were almost two times worse than the takeout. Um, it's, you know, again, I think operators should look at these numbers and say, is this what we want for our mass market customers? Is this what we need? Uh, and I think it just jumps off the page. You know, the answer is no. I don't know if everyone's looking at the numbers in this way and, and analyzing them as such, but uh, we've done it here and suggest that, that more track operators do it. And, and if they do and, and think about how are we going to create new customers and retain existing ones, one of the answers is stay away from jackpot bits. Let's get rid of those. Well, I mean, you know, hopefully people will look at the paper and, and read through it, but there's, what, there's 16 days. I think I just counted 16 days that you have highlighted there uh, of mandatory payout days at Gulfstream and the elite RGS, the two biggest CAW groups, they had one losing day. And this is not all the days, JK, right? This is the not days, all the days we right. obtained from the state of Florida and analyzed. For whatever reason, they've gone quiet on me lately, which is a, a little odd considering it's a public agency, but that's a different story. Um, but yeah, this, this is this is kind of the, the state of affairs over a long period of time. Um, and, and look, players can go in and take a look. I think playing you know mandatory payout day jackpots is hazardous to your betting health. Um, I, I think it's it's a day you should stay away. There was a day in time where I thought it was a day you should play. It makes sense. The money's there. This is the one day you should attack the pick six. But if you're not betting it, you know, hyper efficiently, um, yeah. it, it, it can be hazardous. Hyper efficiently or, or with the battle win a lot approach with opinions, right? Like I'm talking about like if you're playing it and you're singling, you know, a six to one shot. You know, and you love horse at six to one that day, and but you got to build some other opinions. You can't just single the six to one shot, hit the all button, all button, all button. You're you're going to end up upside down. It's inevitable. Um, you have to find some real, uh, real approaches to it. You can't. You know, it's yeah, totally. now my one of my favorite days in racing is is the is a is a Naira pick six. The Saratoga pick six carryover is 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 always a lot of fun. Um, dollar minimum. And, and, and just, it's, you know, you don't have the jackpot rules. I, I know the takeouts, you know, the takeouts, the takeout, but um, you know, I, I do think those days are a little bit more approachable. I agree. Uh, go ahead. No, I'm with you. Um, Pat, and, so some, let's, let's, let's talk a little kind of origin story. And, and you mentioned Hong Kong and um, I know that, Hong Kong is this is a, is this kind of elephant in the room to a certain extent where people in the know of 
the successes that, that Hong Kong has from a, their product and their, their handle, they often point to Hong Kong as like the, the have all the answers place. And it's obviously, it's just a different scenario than we have here, but they obviously do do a lot of things, right. Um, uh, and uh, you know, they're the, the, the forthcoming information with their vet records, the, uh, we talk already about some of the different wagering opportunities. Um, maybe the, the, the avoiding oversaturation by having two days a week that they run and, and, uh, and, and their class system and avoiding the, 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 the claiming game that can cause uh, so many issues from a welfare standpoint. And also just the, they're, they're hard races to handicap um, because you know, you know, you're, you're trying to guess what someone's doing. They do a lot of things, right. But tell everyone what it, what your, your job was at Hong Kong, what brought you there and your experience there in Hong Kong and, and what you wish American racing could could kind of pick and choose from Hong Kong some of the highlights uh, that could help our game. Yeah, I was working for Trackus in 2014, and I was there. Trackus was in place at the time in in Hong Kong, and I was on a trip, and and Bill Nader approached me. Uh, it was for the Hong Kong International Races, and Bill approached me and and asked me if I'd be interested in a role uh, that they had available. Uh, it was executive manager of public affairs for racing. And if you want to get us a sense of the scope of the Hong Kong Jockey Club as an entity, the public affairs division probably has about 70 people working in it, um, of which probably racing had 15, of which I led uh, that team. Um, it had two, or really had one, and then eventually two expatriate racing writers, David Morgan and Andrew Hawkins at the time. Uh, excellent writers, uh, a staff of, of local Hong Kong um, workers, you know, who were, uh, you know, support staff for public affairs. Um, and they were great and dedicated. And, and I led them. And then there was a, a whole team that translates everything right into, into Chinese. Um, so I, I was asked to, to pick up that role and, you know, when the Hong Kong Jockey Club comes calling, you know, it's tough to, to turn them away. I mean, it is a world's leading jurisdiction. They are the operator and the regulator. And, you know, JK, things didn't always go well in Hong Kong. Uh, and I don't mean my experience. I mean in wagering in Hong Kong. So the vision that we have of Hong Kong today is of incredibly successful, uh, best in the world. But for a long period of time, probably about 12 years from the time of reunification with the mainland in 1996, which also was kind of roughly the same time that the Internet really started to take hold, up until about 2006, seven or so, uh, handle was on a, a, a vicious decline. It was really dropping. Uh, the offshore market was a huge threat. Um there were illegal operators and uh, Hong Kong was losing a lot of handle and what turned it around. I mean, uh, besides the tremendous leadership of Winfred Engelbrecht Breskis, the CEO came in at that time, but I mean, he helped uh, spark the change uh, by introducing a rebate. Uh, and there was a rebate for the high volume players who were betting more than the U S equivalent of, uh, about $1,200 per bet 
So if you show up at Happy Valley or Sha Tin in person and you say, I want a Hong Kong $10,000 win bet on number one and number one loses, take your ticket back to the window and they're going to give you $1,000 back. Um, that changed the sport. Uh, that brought back a lot of that money that had gone offshore. Um, the high volume guys were there and they'd always essentially been there. Um, but it, it brought them all uh, into the into the fray. And ever since the rebate was in place, they've done tremendously well. Now they've added race days and they've evolved the racing information and the testing is, is different class. It's at the top of the world and the oversight and the security is fantastic. The transparency is extraordinary. They've done a lot of things that, you know, every racing jurisdiction in the world should emulate however possible with the resources they have. And it's not always possible. Um, so I led that the public affairs division for racing and it's, it was incredibly intense. It was the toughest three years. Uh, I was, you know, six and a half days a week on the job. Um, it was, it was just constant, but it was incredibly rewarding. It felt like a PhD in, in, you know, kind of top level racing administration, uh, working very closely with all the different divisions uh, within the sport and closely with Winford himself, uh, the CEO. And, uh, you know, we, we, it was just, it was a wonderful experience. Um, I met my future wife there, um, she also worked for the club and, uh, and we met in sort of the last six months uh, I was there and then, you know, was presented with the opportunity uh, that Craig offered to come back and, and run the Thoroughbred Idea Foundation, launch it, run it, you know, to bring it from essentially nothing. Um, and it was to me that excited me and the, uh, the chance to come home, it just, it just seemed right. So I had a chance to stay. Uh, and sign a, another three-year deal. And it, it would have been a rocky time. There's no argument about it because you had the riots in 2019 and then you had COVID in 2020 and 21. So I, um, I, I, I got lucky, I guess, uh, deciding to come home when I did. And, um, you know, it, it was a great experience and I'd recommend it for anybody. As a fan, as a better, as an administrator, if you have the opportunity to go to Hong Kong and experience racing, I mean, to work in racing, it is absolutely wonderful. I, I can't recommend it enough. Um, they don't do everything right, but they do a lot right. And uh, it, it is a tremendous source of inspiration for a lot of what TIF has suggested. The focus on transparency, on customer service, attention to detail, customer segmentation is, is just off the charts. The on-course experience is superb. Um uh, they do, they do a lot of really good things and I just can't recommend it highly enough. Uh, my, my opinion of, of racing there is, is just off the charts. Yeah. I mean, I've always, Sean Borman was on and he, you know, he's shifted a lot of his attention from a wagering standpoint to Hong Kong and highlights a lot of the, the, the different wager types, the liquidity in the pools, uh, and 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 the information, uh, the ability to, to just, like you said, a little bit more transparent, do, do you feel like a lot of that has to do with the fact that it's, it is one, one operator and, and, and one administrator uh, that, that kind of makes it all go? Do you think that that allows for 
uh, things to kind of be a little bit tighter? Yeah, I, I think that's certainly part of it. Uh, the other thing is, I mean, there's a tremendous charitable component here to the club uh, that I don't think a lot of Americans ever really understood. So while they offer horse racing betting, they are the world's largest soccer bookmaker, right? So they offer fixed odds on on global soccer. They have they, they run the lottery as well. But um, essentially all, all their profits go to charity. And they are the, at least last I had looked, you know, they were in the world's top 10 uh, list of charitable organizations. So uh, a couple of years ago, I mean, you know, if you looked at the, at the list, it was like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the Silicon Valley Foundation. Um, I think the Ford Foundation was on that list and the Hong Kong Jockey Club. So they they give billions of dollars annually to charitable endeavors all across Hong Kong. And if you are in Hong Kong, and you're going around. You know, there's the Hong Kong Jockey Club uh, swimming pool and, you know, the 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 Kowloon Hong Kong Jockey Club Senior Center uh, and hospitals and university buildings and uh, cultural events and museums the club is you know, part of the, the living, breathing uh, existence of Hong Kong. And, and there's no doubt that, that Hong Kongers have a tremendous connection to racing. You know, so back when Sha Tin didn't exist, it was racing was only in Happy Valley. And the horses literally were stabled at the top of a hill. And they got up in the morning. It was like, you know, it was maybe five or six story stables. And they had the, this big kind of concourse, uh, you know, um, stair, it's not a stairwell, but a, a ramp. And the horses would come out and click clack their way down Shankwang Road and walk to Happy Valley uh, through the city streets to go work out in the morning and then back up the hill they went. And it's a steep hill. I assure you of that. Um, so they, 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 they got to work out in the cool down too. Um and, and it's, you know, it's been that way for, you know, over 140 years now. Um, things obviously evolved and the stabling all shifted out to Sha Tin. But uh, racing is also the only professional, truly professional sport in Hong Kong. So think of a city that has as many people uh, like as, as New York. Um, but it doesn't have Yankee Stadium or City Field or the Barclays Center, or Madison Square Garden. It doesn't have a giant stadium, MetLife Stadium uh, equivalent. It just has Sha Tin and Happy Valley Racecourse. You know, they, they, they have some rugby, they have some soccer, but legitimately the only sporting outlet in the city uh, at, at the peak of professional level is horse racing. You can't get a suite but public admission is like a dollar fifty to come out and go to the races. Of course, free if you're at one of the off-course betting branches, of which I think there's about a hundred across Hong Kong. I think it was estimated that about one in five Hong Kong adults has a betting account with the club. Um, it is truly part of the long-term culture of the city, uh, and. You know, it, it's it's just it's just such a wonderful experience. It gives them 
the ability to be as kind of strong and powerful in overseeing the administration of the sport as they are, right? Every horse is tested before racing on the day of racing, right? Nowhere else in the world does that happen. Uh, the lab is right there at Shatin. But in the morning of racing, every horse will, will have a urine test. If they can't, then, then the blood is taken. But every participant is literally cleared to participate through a pre-race drug test. Um, it's not really replicable anywhere else, right? So there's undoubtedly some advantages that they have over others. Um, all of the workouts, the morning works, are, are published in video form. You can watch horses just galloping. Um, you'll get maybe a 20-second clip of each horse that goes out on the track organized by trainer every day that you can watch on the Jockey Club's website for free. Um, and I'm not just talking about speed work, right, Jake? Like if you're just on the, like, the inside dirt track, just lobbing around there, you'll get your 15 or 20 seconds on the video so that the public can see that you were out that day. Um, again, not fully replicable everywhere, but in whatever format you can, you should be trying, you know, a couple of the things they do that I'd love to see us do over here. Uh, they have barrier trials, which are essentially, you know, group workouts slash practice races. Horses can get different things out of them, but they'll go, uh, half mile, five furlong, sometimes six, sometimes longer if it's needed. It, it depends, but, but, you know, they start a gate, they wear the colors and they're all videoed, uh, times are taken. Uh, and sometimes the stewards require that a horse barrier trial to the satisfaction of the stewards. They publish full stewards reports. Um, there, there's a lot of transparency in that regard. It is super big business and uh, the, the customers show up. Total wagering on an average race day in Hong Kong is equivalent to Kentucky Derby Day. Except every day is like that uh, for 88 race days a year. And they're now the center of kind of the international paramutual wagering space by really kind of becoming the hub for these world pool race days. Um, Irish Derby Day uh, uh, just recently was was one of them where, you know, the eight races I think that were run at the Curra um, or, or, or the vast majority of the races that were run at the Curra that day, um, the, the pools were based in Hong Kong. And a vast majority of the liquidity came from Hong Kong customers. But it wasn't just an ordinary day of racing in Ireland where the pools might be, you know, ten, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000. It was hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, because Hong Kong served as the host to, to simulcast. And they can do this now for, I believe it's about 30, 35 days a year that they're, that they're simulcasting. So, I mean, they're such a global leader in the sport. And they offer, again, like I said, a, a, a number of examples that I think we should follow and try to replicate as best we can with the resources we have. I think it will grow the business. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I do. I need to get over there. I need to get over there. But yeah, I mean, I, look, and I, like you said, I think they have a lot of advantages. But I think that like just because someone has an advantage doesn't mean that you don't study what they do to see what there's For pieces sure. that you can take from that and, 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 and apply them. Um, Pat, we like if I, I'm I know uh, there's a million cans of worms we could open up now, but if we open them now, we'll go for an eternity. But I think what we should do is we'll pull up here, we'll let people digest uh, the sharks and minnows. There's there's a million other reports 
Um, not a million. There's, there's a handful of other reports that you guys have um, wagering insecurities, uh, racing, not only for the elite, um, racing, sustainable fe- uh, future, uh, legal sports betting and how that relates to horse racing. Any breakage, uh, penny, penny breakage, which is, is one of your, uh, one of your huge skins on, on the wall, um, free data. Um, and then obviously the, the, the fun, the one that you get the, 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 the most fun out of is the category one category two. Uh, transparency, uh, reading that and understanding it more when it comes to the stewards' decisions, I think is great. And so we'll we'll obviously have you back to talk about uh, a hundred different things. I'm sure you have another one, another white paper up your sleeve. I won't uh, I won't uh, let anyone know you're coming, but we'll, so we will we will we'll just sneak up on them. But um, you know, obviously, we'll have you back to to talk more. I appreciate it, Jonathan. Thanks for having me, and uh, you know, love the sport, care about it immensely, have since I was a kid. And, you know, all I want is, is the best for everybody associated with it and all of the associated kind of uh, the greater ecosystem of racing is just, we need to be doing everything possible. And, and I don't think we're there right now, uh, but we have an opportunity to, and we can always change going forward. And, and I, you know, I'm happy to be at the, the center of that through the work of what we've done with TIF and in the future. And, uh, appreciate all you do for it as well. And thanks for the chance. Racingthinktank.com. Pat Cummings, I appreciate it. Thanks, man. PAT, I appreciate that. I, anytime I know someone that's named Pat or Ty, I spell it out. I, I don't know why. Uh, uh, like I have a friend, Ty, I call him T-Y. And if I know any Pats, I spell their name out P-A-T. I, I, I don't know. It's... I'm not going to apologize for it. It's just who I am. Um, Pat, thank you for taking the time. And Pat's one of those, those people we're going to definitely have to have back. Like, you know, a lot of these podcasts have repeat people on and, and Pat is so plugged into what's going on in the industry. And he, cause he's worked so hard on these papers to, to be diligent with information and research that he, he really does offer a perspective to the conversation. He, he, he's not just complaining about uh, late odd shifts or, or jackpot wagers. He's, he's talking about things that have real tangible evidence as to how they're potentially not great for the longevity of our game. And that's what we all care about, right? I mean, obviously I want to have a great eight weeks here at Saratoga, but more importantly, man, like I want to have a great eight weeks at Saratoga in 10 years. Um, I want to have a great Kentucky Derby in 15 years. I want, um, I want this pastime and this hobby and this sport I love that we all fell in love with. I, I want it to be here and I want it to be thriving. I don't want it to be, um, you know, I, I want it to be Major League Baseball. I want it to be the NFL. I want it to be NBA and, and March Madness and and uh, and the FedEx Cup. And, and, and I want it to be these things. And like, I mean, I know that you all believe that it can be, but like, you know, I think we have to to, to, to take some shit seriously and like, tighten up a few things and be creative and take chances and listen to our customer and focus on making the pie bigger and not just our piece of the pie. And like, so, you know, whenever I have people on, I always talk about the fun stuff and that's, that'll continue to be the same, but like, man, we got to also talk about some of the shit we got to do better. 
and uh and and so having pat on to to talk about some of the things that they've accomplished and you know make sure you go to racingthinktank.com i know a lot of you probably checked it out when we had craig burnick i encourage you to check it out again read these papers and and i and i, I encourage you to read them because it's important for you to educate yourself on these things but i think that through this world and and, the, and one of the things that's great about podcasts is like i can send you to that you can become educated and then someone who might not be able to turn on a computer that you know, you can educate them through what you consumed with the last hour and a half or hour and 40 minutes of me and Pat, but also the, the hard work that they've put up in writing at the Thoroughbred Idea Foundation. Um, and so let, let's, let's just, let's, let's have fun. Let's focus on the positives, but let's not, uh, let's not ignore. I, I don't remember what I said at the beginning, the, the, whatever the creature is in the corner, whether it's an elephant or a gorilla, someone tweet to me what the right one is. Cause I don't want to keep saying it wrong. Um, I'm excited. It's around the corner. Make sure you subscribe, follow, retweet, keep us rolling here. Uh, keep people. Uh, it's going to be a heavy, heavy summer. We're excited about it. We're going to have a lot of fun. Uh, we're going to have lots of different, uh, things going on for you. Um, I want to thank our friends at Qatar Racing. I can't wait to see Caravel. I can't wait to see Ever So Mischievous. And I can't wait to see uh, my man Sheikh Fahad signing tickets at the Phasic Tipton sale this summer. I'll be drinking champagne. I won't be signing any tickets. I'll be drinking champagne and just, you know, cheering all my friends. I want to thank PTF, Drew, uh, James, uh, uh, I don't even know, Tyler, uh, Maggie, Acacia, Billy, Michelle, um, Maddie Ice. Spencer, the whole crew. Um, I appreciate you taking the time and we'll catch you next week. I need to know everything. Who in the what in the where I need everything. Trust me, I hear what you're saying, but I like it's new what you're telling me. I'm curious, George. I hop in the Porsche, there's five and a horse. I'm ready for war. I'm coming for ghosts to turn to a ghost. I need to know everything. Now you'd be surprised at the info you get is by letting them talk, so I'm letting them talk.